Welcome back, Heming Brainsiax, to Book 6, Chapter 2 of Buddenbrook's Predictions for Tony. Will she find a new man? Who cares? You know, who cares? I'm regretting saying that question, but it was also the question that was sort of being hinted at, I guess, by the chapter. But after so many books of trying to get the daughter married off, <laughs> I feel like that's what every book we've read about. Red is about trying to see who the daughter's going to marry. Anyway, what are your predictions? Will she find a new man? And Christian is out there tarnishing the family name, a silly boy. Is he, though? I was wondering about this. Because, I mean, he is. But also, you know, he Tom is saying that Christian's out there giving the business a bad name. But I wonder if the business being run poorly by Tom is giving it a bad name. And Tom is just cross at Christian because Christian's drawing attention to them. Maybe? Techrific said this. A side note on the reading fatigue discussed in the podcast. We still have the Oxford Book of Verse, English verse, left on the list. So a compromise might be to forego the voting on what to read next and take, take on the Oxford Book of English Verse. Next. We could even share the burden and distribute parts of it to different people who voluntarily take on the stewardship of those parts of the book. I mean, record a reading of the poem, post a discussion, provide discussion prompts in the usual manner that we are all accustomed to. What uh, Would that be a compromise that people could get behind? Maybe we should discuss this in a separate post, but I thought I'd just put it here to get the ball rolling. Let me know what you think, Ander. Um, I think it's a good... I think we should have the discussion, you know? Um, people volunteering to do a reading here and there is also always welcomed. I love it when people do readings. Um, so we can definitely get behind that. And I like the idea of reading the Oxford Book of English Verse next. I mean, we've only got three books to go, so it's going to come up soon enough anyway. Um, yeah, it could be a good idea. I think I'm not familiar with the Book of verse to be honest i don't know how many poems are in it you see if there's like you know 500 short poems then i don't want to spend a year and a half reading one book one poem at a time you know i, I would rather you know knock them off in bunches and then get it done in a couple of months um but yeah i think you know what rather than me trying to figure it out right now i think what you said about having a discussion is a good idea so uh if you get the chance, maybe do put a post on. I'll leave that up to you, Techrific, to chuck a post on the Hemingway List subreddit just to discuss what to read next and how to maybe approach the book, the sorry, the reading fatigue, you know, um, just for general ideas on, on what else we could do to, to address that. Because I don't think I'm the only one feeling it. Techrific, I don't think you're feeling it because you had a bit of a break while we went off and did War and Peace for a year. So you're, you've had a year break, you know. Um, but for some of us, yeah, definitely. So, cool, yeah. Uh, I'll leave that in your hands, Tech, and thank you for in advance for doing that and for bringing it up today. Swim said the mama fishy said this, I'm guessing Tony will meet another man. I've known several women who had a child, it seemed to be women 
who only had one child, and once the child reached a certain age, they went looking. They all seemed to find someone, but not all lasted, so we shall see what Tony comes up with. Part 2, question 2, Christian is indolent, self-absorbed, and immature. My translation has this hilarious phrase about the family, moments of life that can only manifest themselves among people thrown together in families. So, so many moments over the years. <clears throat> yeah, that is a good line. Sometimes the people thrown together in a family are so random that the only thing uniting them is the fact that they're a family. And I love that. Techrific says, Christian is tragicomical, with less and less comedy as the years fly by. He's like a hurt slacker. Most slackers are proud of themselves. It's a statement of nonconformity, but the more I read, the more I find that a lot of the characters seem to share this feature of being prideful, and somehow that pride gets attacked psychologically, and it defines them in a sense, but not always in the same way, but it becomes a permanent source of intrigue. I keep thinking about with Christian, I really think if he was a modern-day man, he would be getting some kind of a clinical diagnosis of something like ADHD or, I, I don't know, maybe on the autism spectrum or something like that, because the thing that makes me think those things was a, f a while back when his siblings were describing him just not really seeming to to notice or at least to heed kind of social cues about the way he acts like he's a he's so oblivious to his own appearance uh and he also doesn't seem to understand that him uh, his emotions are the same as other people's emotions like if he likes the theatre, he thinks, I like the theatre like nobody else does. You know, he doesn't understand that actually m people experience things the same way he does. Um, so, I don't know, maybe ADHD, I reckon. He seems like the kind of guy that would walk out of the room whilst you're talking to him. <laughs> Not because he's disinterested, just because he's absent-minded. Or a little bit, you know, hyperactive. TA131901 says, Interesting how four children from the same family can be so different. I don't think that's uncommon, though, or is it? I don't think so. I think, um, especially if I look across my extended family, there's heaps of siblings who are just polar opposites. All right, I think we move on. I think we read the next chapter, <clears throat> which um, is chapter three. What page was it on? Three. I don't actually know. I have to find it. Sorry, I'm going to have to do that thing where I skim through the book looking for what chapter we're up to. That's rather annoying. Book six, chapter three. Um, Alright, one moment. Uh, there's chapter two. Alright. Sorry for the dead air. Usually I find the chapter before I start, but today I forgot to. Okay, and now I found the chapter, and I'm having a sneaky look at how long it is. Seven pages. All right, chapter three goes like this. Consul Buddenbrook came from the Harmony, a reading club for men, where he spent the hour after second breakfast back into Meng Street. 
He crossed the yard from behind, entered the side of the garden by the passage which ran between vine-covered walls and connected the back and front courtyards, and called into the kitchen to ask if his brother were at home. They should let him know where he came in. Then he passed through the office, where the men at the desks bent more closely over their work, into the private room. He laid aside his hat and stick, put on his working coat, and sat down in his place by the window opposite her and Marcus. Between the pale eyebrows were two deep wrinkles, the yellow end of a Russian cigarette roamed from one corner of his mouth to the other. The movements with which he took up paper and writing materials were so short and jerky that her Marcus ran his two fingers up and down his beard and gave his colleague one scrutinising look. The younger men glanced at him with raised eyebrows. He's, the head was angry. After half an hour during which nothing was heard but the scratching of pens and the sound of her Marcus discreetly clearing his throat, the console looked over the green half-blind and saw Christian coming down the street. He was smoking. His, he came from the club where he had eaten and also played a bit. He wore his hat a little awry on his head and swung his yellow stick which had come from over there and had the bust of a nun for a handle. He was obviously in good health and the best of tempers. He came humming into the office and said good morning gentlemen, although it was a bright spring afternoon, and took his place to do a bit of work. But the console got up and passing him said without looking at him, oh may I have a few words with you? Christian followed him. They walked rather rapidly through the entry. Thomas held his hands behind his back and Christian involuntarily did the same, turning his big bony hooked nose toward his brother. The red blonde moustache drooped, English fashion, over his mouth while they went across the court. Thomas said, We will walk a few steps up and down the garden, my friend. Good, answered Christian. Then there was a long silence again while they turned to the left and walked by the outside way past the Rococo portal right around the garden where the buds were beginning to swell. Finally, the console said in a loud voice with a long breath, I've just been very angry on account of your behaviour. My, yes, I heard in the harmony about a remark of yours that you dropped in the club last evening. It was so obnoxious, so incredibly tactless, that I can find no words. The stupidity called down a sharp snub on you at once. Do you care to recall what it was? I know now what you mean. Who told you that? What has that to do with it? Dolman in a voice loud enough so that all the people who did not already know the story could laugh at the joke. Well, Tom, I must say I was ashamed of Hagerstrom. You were ashamed. You were. Listen to me, shouted the consul, stretching out both hands in front of him and shaking them in excitement. In a company consisting of business as well as professional men, you make the remark for everybody to hear that when one really considers it, every businessman is a swindler. You, a businessman yourself, belonging to a firm that strains every nerve and muscle to preserve its perfect integrity and spotless reputation. Good heavens, Thomas, it was a joke. Although, really, Christian hesitated, wrinkling his nose and stooping a little in this position, he took a few steps. A joke, shouted the consul. I think I can understand a joke, but you see how your joke was understood. For my part... I have the greatest respect for my calling. That was what Herman Hangenstrom answered you. And there you sat, a good-for-nothing, with no respect for yours. 
Tom, you don't know what you're talking about. I assure you he spoiled the whole joke. After everybody laughed, as if they agree with me, there sat this Hagenstrom and brought out with ridiculous solemnity for my part. Stupid fool. I was really ashamed for him. I thought about it a long time in bed last night, and I had a quite remarkable feeling. You know how it feels. Stop chattering, stop chattering, I beg you, interrupted the console. He trembled with disgust in his whole body. I agree, I agree with you that his answer was not in the right key and that it was tactless, but that is just the kind of people you pick out to say such things to, if it is necessary to say them at all, and so you lay yourself open to an insolent snub like that. Hagenstrom took the opening to give not only you but us a slap. Do you understand what for my part meant? It meant you may have such ideas going about in your brother's office, Herb Buddenbrook. That's what I meant, you idiot. Idiot, said Christian. He looked disturbed and embarrassed. And finally, you belong not to yourself alone. I am supposed to be indifferent when you make yourself personally ridiculous, and when you don't, you make yourself personally ridiculous. Oh, sorry. I'm supposed to be indifferent when you make yourself personally ridiculous, and when don't you make yourself personally ridiculous? Thomas cried. He was pale, and the blue veins stood out on his narrow temples from which the hair went back in two bays. One of his light eyebrows was raised, even the long, stiff, pointed ends of his moustache looked angry as he threw his words down at Christian's feet on the gravel with quick sideways gestures. Excuse me. You make yourself a laughing stock with your love affairs, your harlequinades, your diseases, and your remedies. Christian shook his head vehemently and put up a warning finger. As far as that goes, Tom, you don't understand. Very well, you know, the thing is, everyone must attend to his own conscience, so to speak. I don't know if you understand that. Grauel has ordered me a salve for the throat muscles. Well, if I don't use it, if I neglect it, I am quite lost and helpless. I am restless and uncertain and worried and upset and I can't swallow. But if I have been using it, I feel that I have done my duty. I have a good conscience. I am quiet and calm and can swallow famously. The salve does not do it, you know. But the thing is that an idea like that, you understand, can only be destroyed by another idea, an opposite one. I don't know whether you understand me. Oh yes, oh yes, cried the console, holding his head for a moment with both hands. Do it, do it, but don't talk about it. Don't gabble about it. Leave other people alone with your horrible nuances. You make yourself ridiculous with your absurd chatter from morning to night, I must tell you, and I repeat it. I am not interested in how much you make a fool of yourself personally, but I forbid you. I forbid your compromising the firm in the way you did yesterday evening. Christian did not answer except to run his hand slowly over his sparse red-brown locks, while his eyes roamed unsteadily and absently, and unrest sat upon his face. Undoubtedly he was still busy with the idea which he had just been expressing. There was a pause. Thomas stalked about with the calmness of despair. All businessmen are swindlers, you say? He began afresh. Good. Are you tired of it? Are you sorry for your... For you are a businessman. You once got permission from father. Why, Tom, said Christian reflectively, I would really rather study. It must be nice to be in the university. One attends when one likes, at one's own free will, sits down and listens, 
as in the theatre. As in the theatre, yes. I think your right place is that of a comedian in a cafe chantant. I'm not joking. I am perfectly convinced that is your secret ideal. Christian did not deny it. He merely gazed aimlessly about. And you have the cheek to make such a remark when you haven't the slightest notion of work and spend your day storing up a lot of feelings and sensations and episodes you hear in the theatre and when you are loafing about God knows where, you take these and pet them and study them and chatter about them shamelessly. Yes, Tom, said Christian. He was a little depressed and rubbed his hand against, again over his head. That is true. You have expressed it correctly. That is the difference between us. You enjoy the theatre yourself and you have had your little affairs too, once on a time, between ourselves. And there was a time when you preferred novels and poetry and all that, but you've always known how to reconcile it with regular work and a serious life. I haven't that. I'm quite used I'm quite used up with the other. I have nothing left over the regular life. Ah, oh, sorry, I have nev I have nothing left over for the regular life. I don't know whether you understand. Oh, so you see that cried Thomas, standing still and folding his arms on his breast. You humbly admit that, and still you go on the same old way. Are you a dog, Christian? A man has some pride, by God. One doesn't live a life that one may not know how to defend oneself, but so you are. That is your character. If you can only see a thing and understand and describe it, no, my patience is at an end, Christian. And the consul took a quick backward step and made a gesture with his arms straight out. It is at an end, I tell you. You draw your prey and stay away from the office. That isn't what irritates me. Go and trifle your life away, as you have been doing, if you choose. But you compromise us, all of us, wherever you are. You are a growth, a fester on the body of our family. You are a disgrace to us here in this town. And if this house were mine, I'd show you the door. He screamed, making a wild sweeping gesture over the garden, the court and the whole property. He had no more control of himself. His long-stored-up well of hatred poured itself out. "'What is the matter with you, Thomas?' said Christian. He was seized with unaccustomed anger, standing there in a position common to bow-legged people, like a question mark with a head, stomach and knees all prominent. His little deep eyes were wide open and surrounded by red rims down to the cheekbones, as his father's used to be in anger. "'How are you speaking to me? What have I done to you?' I'll go without being thrown out, shame on you, he added with downright reproach, accompanying the word with a short snapping motion in front of him, as if he were catching a fly. Strange to say, Thomas did not meet this outburst by more anger. He bent his head and slowly took his way around the garden. It seemed to quiet him, actually to do him good, to have made his brother angry at least to have pushed him finally to the energy of a protest. Believe me, he said quietly, putting his hands behind his back again. This conversation is truly painful to me, but it had to take place. Such scenes in the family are frightful, but we must speak out once and for all. Let us talk the thing over quietly, young one. You do not like your present position, it seems. No, Tom, you are right about that. You see, at first I was very well satisfied. I know I'm better off here than in a stranger's business. But what I want is the independence, I think. I have always envied you when I saw you. 
sit there and work, for it is really no work at all for you. You work not because you must, but as master and head, and let others work for you, and you have the control, make your calculations, and are free, it is quite different. Good, Christian, why couldn't you have said that before? You can make yourself free or freer if you like. You know Father left you as well as me an immediate inheritance of 50,000 marks current, and I'm ready at any moment to pay out this sum for a reasonable and sound purpose. In Hamburg, or anywhere else you like, there are plenty of safe but limited firms where they could use an increase of capital and where you could enter as a partner. Let us think the matter over quietly, each by himself, and also speak to Mother at a good opportunity. I must get to work, and you could for the present go on with the English correspondence. As they crossed the entry, he added, What do you say, for instance, to HCF Burmeester and Company in Hamburg? Import and export. I know the man. I'm certain he would snap at it. That was in the end of May of the year 1857. At the beginning of June, Christian travelled via Bouchon to Hamburg, a heavy loss to the club, the theatre, the Tivoli, and the liberal livers of the town. All the good fellows among them, Dr. Jusek and Peter Dolman, took leave of him at the station and brought him flowers and cigars and laughed to split their sides, recalling no doubt all the stories Christian had told them, and lawyer Jusek, amidst general applause, fastened to Christian's overcoat a great favour made out of gold paper. This favour came from a sort of inn in the neighbourhood of the port, a place of free and easy resort where a red lantern burned above the door at night, and it was always very lively. The favour was awarded to the departing Christian, Chris Buddenbrook for his distinguished services. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. Christian's been given the boot. All of the young uh, scallywags of the town are sad to see him go. And he's off to... Uh, where did he go? Um, Hamburg. Very cool. All right. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.